get into today's passage. It's, it's coming from Matthew. Um, I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, this new sermon series that we'll be exploring during Lent at Oak Church. Um, as you can see up on the screen, it's being called Imagine That. And this series is going to be looking at some of Jesus' parables that are told in the book of Matthew. And Chris introduced this uh, topic a little bit last week and, and, and some of what, why it is that we're looking at it. Um, I thought it would be good to, to dig back into this question this morning and to consider it again now that, now that we're here, now that we're at this time. So why, why study Jesus' parables? Why now during Lent? How might our spending time with these stories during this season Help us to be prepared to better encounter Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, in order to, to think about what these parables can offer to us, I think that it, we also need to think about what the Bible as a whole offers to us and what it, what it is that it um, brings into our lives. Christians, of course, have long held the Bible to be the ultimate source of authority and truth, and I absolutely hold that. But um, we sometimes need to really ask, what, is that, what does that mean? Because in modern times, most of us have been conditioned, have been taught to think that authority and truth are usually derived from, from facts and from structures and from really precise rules. And if that's the case, then the Bible is often a really strange source of authority and truth. Because instead of really clear and precise definitions about who God is and how our lives should be lived, the Bible instead usually teaches us with these really epic and sometimes strange and, and kind of confusing stories. And instead of lists of facts, we get long books of poetry or prophecy. And when the Bible tries to describe reality to us, it doesn't go about some scientific precision. Instead, it usually speaks in, in these visions that have really bizarre and fantastic images that are sprinkled all through them. And sometimes I think that makes us, especially in modern times, a little unsure of what to make of the Bible. We're tempted to try to iron out all these wrinkles, to ignore the weird parts that don't quite fit our ideas, and to, to make the Bible conform to our idea of what truth and authority should be. But when we do this, I think we are doing both the Bible and ourselves really dangerous disservice. Because maybe it isn't the Bible that needs to explain itself. Maybe it's we who are the ones that need to shift our own understanding of what authority and truth are and can be. And so one of the possibilities that we'll be exploring in this series is that when the Bible brings us into truth, when it explores truth, it very often is less concerned with facts and rules than it is with our vision and our imagination. 
See, from the very beginning of the Bible, the ideas, the themes of sight and vision played a really important role. It starts very first chapter, Genesis 1. After every single act of creation, we are told that God saw that creation was good. And then two chapters later, when we explore the fall and, and the story of how sin came about in, into the world, we're told that, that the sin entered when Adam and Eve began to see the world in a different way, when their eyes were opened uh, in a new and kind of a distorted fashion. The problem isn't that they saw the world or understood the world. The problem was that they stopped seeing the world as God sees the world. They stopped seeing the world that creatures should see the world. And so one of the primary tasks of the Bible is, is this recovery of true sight, true vision. <coughs> In Genesis, as, as the story continues on and, and we follow this tale through generations of families, we sometimes see moments where, where the brokenness that's created by the sin is healed when the brothers Jacob and Esau come back together or when Joseph and his brothers reunite in Egypt. And whenever this happens, the Bible brings up this, this motif that they were reconciled when they finally saw their brothers' faces. And Jesus, of course, as we've been talking about in recent week, also speaks often of vision. Jesus says that he is one who has come to recover the sight for the blind. And so conversion, you could almost say in the Bible, isn't just about accepting a new set of facts, a new set of ideas. Instead, conversion entails, you could maybe even say begins in our eyes, in our imaginations. It's, it's about learning to see the world once more as God intends for us to see it. And as we spend time in the pages of the Bible, as we, as we read its stories and its poems, we're receiving much more than precise facts and figures. Instead, we're being given an entirely new lens with which we can see and imagine this world given language and imagery that help us frame and guide our vision as we try to return to God's truth. And very often, this process of restoring vision requires us to be disrupted. We have to be shaken out of our, our complacency so that we can realize that there is actually another way to see the world than the one that we have been taught. And so the Bible, generally speaking, and, and Jesus' parables especially, take place in scenes or situations that seem very familiar. They, they begin very familiar, but eventually they throw in a very unexpected twist. And, and when this happens, this world that we thought that we knew so well, that we understood so completely, suddenly starts to seem a little bit unfamiliar and mysterious. We're unsettled by it. And in many ways, that's exactly where we need to be. We need to be unsettled. We need to be 
disoriented from our old ways of seeing the world. Because this way of seeing leads us only to brokenness and pain. It's only when we're once again looking around and, and doubting what we might know that we truly begin to listen again, where our hearts are willing to learn again. And I think it's only in that position that we have a chance to once more <coughs> truly encounter the living God. I, I try not to quote Thomas Merton in every single sermon <laughs> that I perform, but sometimes I can't avoid it. When there's a time where he's writing about the element of mystery and faith and, and how it plays a role in shaping a relationship with God. And, and he wrote, God approaches our minds by receding from them. <coughs> we can never fully know God if we think of God as an object of capture, to be fenced in by the enclosure of our own ideas. We know God better after our minds have let God go. The Lord travels in all directions at once. The Lord arrives from all directions at once. Wherever we are, we find that God has just departed. Wherever we go, we discover that God has just arrived before us. Somewhere in this, I think we get the sense of why it is that parables are so important, especially in a time like Lent, as we're preparing for Easter. The, this, this act, this task that we're, we're engaging now to prepare ourselves to, to encounter and to remember Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is one that is preparing us to face a vast mystery. But like the disciples in the Transfiguration story that Chris preached on last week, it's often so tempting for us to reveal this, this unknowable and vast mystery into really easy ideas that we can hold, that we can wrap our minds around. We like to make all this really comfortable and familiar. We try, like the disciples on Mount Tabor, to build tiny little houses that can contain and keep this infinite glory and majesty for our own enjoyment. But as Chris taught us last week, the transfiguration story tells us that Jesus wants no part of that. The good news of Christ was never something that was meant to sit still. It was meant to move. It was meant to go out into the world outside of our comfortable spaces to transform corners and places that we've never seen we've never imagined. And so the Bible and Jesus' parables are, are this force that are constantly churning and spinning. And they're doing this so that they can break down all of these easy and clean structures that we might to come up with, to contain God, to contain God's mercy. They resist all of our attempts to, to stop where we are and to grow comfortable. And instead, they, they force us to open up our imaginations so that we too might be freed to 
carry the good news of Christ out into the world. And so with all of that said, we finally come to today's passage. It comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 35. Technically, it was supposed to be verses 15 through 35, but I think that the few verses before it offer a really good perspective that adds to this discussion. And so appropriately, to start a, a series in Lent, this is a passage that's about forgiveness. Forgiveness, of course, is, is deeply relevant to Easter. Forgiveness is at the heart of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Christ died so that humanity might be forgiven. But again, here we need to ask, what, is that, what does that really mean? Where might we be in danger of limiting the depth and the power and the momentum of the forgiveness that Christ is offering to us? So we read. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that has gone astray. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member of the church refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against you, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, 
and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him one hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. <coughs> then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his lord handed him over to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of God. So there's a lot going on in these verses. There are, there are so many things that we could talk about in this passage, but for today, I want to focus especially on two ideas. The first is, is the direction or movement of forgiveness in God's creation. And the second are the dimensions of forgiveness. I'll, I'll try to explain a little bit what I mean in each of these. So for starters, one of the things that I think that Jesus is trying to do in this passage is to, to challenge our understanding of who forgiveness is for. I think it's very easy for us during this season to think about forgiveness as, as God's gift for us, the saved, the, the chosen ones. And when that happens, forgiveness can very quickly become something that inspires no movement at all. Instead of going out into the world, we receive our blessing contentedly and then go home to rest with ease and comfort. But when Jesus is teaching about forgiveness, there isn't really a sense of rest at all. Because here we're seeing that forgiveness is not static, but is, is relentless. It's God's relentless pursuit of the lost. The forgotten, the scared, and the lonely. Based on this passage, you could even say that God has a preference for the lost. Jesus tells us that God rejoices more in finding one sheep, one child who has been lost, than the 99 children who never went astray. That's not to say that we who are, are in God's church, in God's family, are unimportant. But when we join the body of Christ, we become, in, in a certain important sense, as like God's hands and feet in this, in this mission. We become the, the hands and feet of this good shepherd as the shepherd moves out into our world in search of 
the lost and the lonely and the afraid. And so God's joy in finding and recovering the lonely and the scared is to become our joy. It is to become the motivation that drives us forward and moves us through our days. <coughs> and so the second thing is that I think that Jesus is challenging by way of this, is challenging our understanding of, of the dimensions of forgiveness. And what I mean by this is that Jesus is challenging any notion that we might try to have that <coughs> forgiveness is, is this one-time event, that it's something that happens to us and for us in one specific moment of time. This is a, a really two-dimensional understanding of forgiveness <coughs> that we can, we can take and we can hold very close to our person. But in Jesus, we, we see this notion of forgiveness that's spacious and alive and moving. Jesus addresses this in a couple of ways. First, there's his response to Peter's question about how many times we should forgive a member of our church who's wronged us. Peter, in Peter's bold, if not slightly clumsy passion, pipes up and asks, well, how many times should we forgive them? As, as many as seven times? Now, to be fair, this wasn't just Peter picking a number out of the sky at random. Seven, in Jewish culture at that time, was a, a number of completeness. To do something seven times was kind of like doing something in its entirety. And so, after that, there really wasn't much more or anything more that you could ask someone. But entirety isn't enough for Jesus when it comes to the world of forgiveness. Instead, Jesus stops Peter and says, no, you do not forgive seven times, but seventy-seven times, or the same word in Greek is sometimes translated as seventy times seven. The point is the same, though. Forgiveness operates in the world of Christ as as completeness squared, if you will. It is completeness that has completely lost all bounds of finitude. There are to be no limits to our capacity to forgive others. And as if anticipating our question of oh, why, why, why can't there be limits, Jesus then tells the second parable that we read this morning, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, if we jump to the middle of the story, we find a situation where one servant, the, the unforgiving servant, meets another servant who owes him money. <coughs> now, a hundred denarii is kind of obscure, obviously, to those of us in modern times, but it's not an insignificant debt. A laborer during that age would earn about one denarii per and so this debt was equal to about 100 days of work. It's over a third, probably, of someone's annual salary. And so just for the sake of, this is not official at all, but just to kind of put these in terms that might make a little more sense to us, let's say that a laborer earns $100 a day, or about $25,000 a year. On that measure, this servant would have owed the unforgiving servant a 
about $10,000. It's not a small thing. And so when the servant who owes the money says that he can't pay, the unforgiving servant grows angry and throws him immediately into prison. This might seem like a really harsh but borderline reasonable response if it wasn't for what had already happened at the beginning of the story. Because as we know at this point, the unforgiving servant has just been in a situation of, of debt and repayment himself. <coughs> at the beginning of the parable, he was brought before his master and asked to pay his debt of 10,000 pounds. Now, if you heard this in Jesus' original audience, your job would either be on the floor, or you would just be laughing. Because this debt is, is so large that it's just entirely ridiculous. Um, one talent, one talent, was roughly the amount of money that a laborer, like this unforgiving servant, would earn in 15 years. Now take that and multiply it by 10,000. If we kept using the conversion that we used earlier, a salary of $25,000 a year, 10,000 talents would be roughly equal to $3.75 billion. <laughs> but the numbers aren't important. But it gets the point across. Jesus is telling us about a servant who owes an unfathomable, almost limitless amount could have worked for a thousand lifetimes and barely made a dent in this debt. But then something really remarkable happens in the story. This unforgiving servant fell to his knees and pleaded with his master for, for patience, for forgiveness. And his master listened. He had pity on him and released him. He forgave him of this unfathomably large debt. When, when you're dealing with, with numbers this large, with debts these large, numbers kind of start to break. This isn't just a case of, of generosity or someone kind of adjusting their accounting sheets. To, to move beyond a debt of that size is a pretty clear signal that, that the relationship is no longer based on questions of debt, of payment, of transaction at all. And this story, I think, ultimately helps us understand some of the dynamics that are at work on the cross. It's, it's so important for us to remember that Christ didn't come and, and offer forgiveness to humanity at a time when humanity was doing things pretty good. <laughs> this wasn't Jesus coming and saying, you know, you guys are trying really hard. And you're almost there, so I'm just going to give you the extra push of revenge time. Christ's forgiveness wasn't even extended to us when we had a big debt. It's not like we were just breaking eight out of the ten commandments and God decided to overlook a few things. Our debt is unfathomably greater than that. The claim of the Christian faith is that God forgave us after God came to us in human form and we seized him 
and we mocked him and we beat him and spit upon him and crucified him and we killed him. That is an unfathomable death. If, if humanity's salvation has anything to do with worthiness, anything to do with our right behavior, it's over. Right then and there. There's no coming back from that. And yet, we claim that this moment, this same cross, is the very vehicle of our salvation. And so to accept this salvation, to, to move into this understanding of the world, is one where we have to move past any understanding of, of transaction, of earning merit, of, of a, a debt-oriented way of life. It just can't operate any longer. To be welcomed into this salvation is to be welcomed into a life where our love is based purely on belonging, where God's love for us is based on just that, God's love for us. There is one catch, though. While we can do nothing to earn this love, we do have to accept it. And, and as the parable of the unforgiving servant kind of disturbingly illustrates for us, it's not always easy for us to do. We may be really eager to, 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 to claim these benefits for ourselves. We're very happy to have our debt forgiven. But it can be much harder to believe in this way of life to the point where we're really willing to extend that grace to other people. And, and ultimately, this leads us back to what's a pretty dark <coughs> turn at the end of this story, at the end of this paradigm. <coughs> After the unforgiving servant has, has responded with such anger to the other servant and, and thrown him in prison, the master hears of what happens, and the master throws this unforgiving servant into prison to be tortured until he could pay off this unfathomably large debt. One of the commentators I was reading for this was suggesting that really this isn't about the master exacting a new punishment upon the servant for bad behavior. Instead, what this reflects is the servant's choice to willingly <coughs> leave this new way of life. The servant has rejected this space and realm of forgiveness that's been opened as a possibility for him. And after this happens, the servant willingly travels back into the old way of debts, of merit. And as Jesus tells us in Luke, the measure you give will be the measure that you get back. If we choose to live in that realm, then that is the realm that you will live in with God. And the point of all this, I don't think, is to scare us, although maybe to a certain degree it should. But I think the larger point is that forgiven is, forgiveness isn't this this small, two-dimensional, momentary gift that we just keep to ourselves. 
Instead, forgiveness is inviting us to this new spacious realm of life and being and love. We are invited into it by God's grace. And once we are there, we are to be vehicles of it, to extend this into God's creation. I really love in the, um, the discussion of the, the my name is escaping me, but the church that we were um, in the Ecclesial Network this morning, when they're talking about the illustration of, of a greenhouse, of like creating that space, I think that that's a very similar movement of, of what's going on here. It's, um, it, it's, it's opening our reality to explore new possibilities. And so, in, in this realm of forgiveness, when we have this idea that not only we're, we're having a new spacious realm of life opened around us, and also that we are being sent by God out into the world to pursue the lost, to be God's hands and feet, as he shepherds his flock, we, we find ourselves in an understanding of forgiveness that is very different than one that we just kind of keep privately to ourselves. Instead, God, again, is, is allowing us to, to find a place of new patterns, of new relationships, amidst all of this brokenness and pain. And it's only when God is able to create this space for us that we can then lower our walls of anger and resentment and fear that separate us from one another, that, that keep us from enjoying the life of creation that God intended for us. In this new space, God and the Holy Spirit can work to reorder that which is so disordered in our world. And when we're there, we can once more join our lives in peace to one another. And ultimately, all of creation can join its life to God. We all pray with that. Lord, we thank you again for the word. We thank you for, for challenging us. We thank you for your grace, Lord. Pray that we would never make this a small thing, an easy thing, but that we would take this, this gift that you offered to us and that you would that you give us the, the courage and the strength to allow it to transform our lives. Send us out into the world in your new space, in your new disposition of grace and forgiveness, that we might Find those who are lost. Find those who are scared. Find those who have been pushed to the margins. And create new patterns and new forms of relationship that would heal our community. 